Start in Deuteronomy 6 this morning. <clears throat> now this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it. That you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Hear therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets before your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob to give you with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. And when you eat and are full, then take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery." It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you. For the Lord your God in your midst is a jealous God. Lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you, and he destroy you from off the face of the earth. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test, as you tested him at Massa. You shall diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God and his testimonies and his statutes, which he has commanded you. And you shall do what is right and good in the sight of the Lord, that it may go well with you, and that you may go in and take possession of the good land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers by thrusting out all your enemies from before you, as the Lord has promised. When your son asks you in time to come, what is the meaning of these testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you? Then you shall say to your son, We were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand, and the Lord showed signs and wonders, great and grievous, against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes. And he brought us out from there that he might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to give our fathers. And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God, for our good always, that he may preserve us alive as we are to this day. And it will be righteous for us if we are careful. It will be righteousness for us if we are careful to do all this commandment before the Lord our God as he has commanded us. Psalm 127. A song of a sense of Solomon. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who labor, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go to bed late, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb, a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. And lastly, Romans 3, verses 21 through 31. But now the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law, although the law and the prophets hear witness to it. The righteousness of God 
through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since God is one, who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith? Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. This is the word of the Lord. This is uh, probably one of the longer readings that we've ever had. And just so I calm your fears at the onset, we're not going to exposit every verse. Uh, We would be here for days if we were going to do that. We're going to cover some large ideas about life, about the nature of worship, about how we as believers seek to walk as those who are powered, empowered by the Spirit of Christ and those who are seeking to put God's Word into our lives in an incarnational fashion. Yes, when the, the Bible says that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, it's primarily speaking about Jesus Christ, but the pattern is very similar. In the New Testament epistles, the apostles show the church that they are to become like their Redeemer. Uh, Paul argues that we have borne the image of our maker, that is, we were made in the image of God. Genesis 1 through 3 uh, talks about how we were made in God's image and we fell. And then Paul says, not only has God redeemed us, and not only have we borne the image of our maker, we will bear the image of our redeemer. We are supposed to be, as Christians, being made more like Christ all the time. And uh, it's somewhat true every week, but especially true, to, true today. If you were here at the Sunday School Hour, you already have a little bit of an advance on the topic of what we're going to be talking about today, uh, specifically that Jesus Christ's most favorite book is Deuteronomy. And that shows up, uh, that in, has a, a little bit of an indictment against us in the fact that we can't really even get through Deuteronomy. It becomes too boring and we uh, abort uh, right, way, right halfway through it. We just, you know, eject our seat and uh, go somewhere fun, like the epistles or <laughs> Proverbs. Proverbs is easy. It's, you know, if you have a problem with ADD, don't go through Proverbs. It's just too many topics all at once. Um, we have very little... Uh, ability to do the work of reading the scripture in a holistic fashion because we're we're so used to chopping it up. And in this regard, I actually think sometimes uh, Bible plans that divide the word too much can actually be counterproductive. Uh, The reason why is because God's word, God's law is given in sections, it's given in books, and the context for these books is very important. In fact, I was at a very significant loss as to which part of Romans to read. I wanted to read all of chapter 2 and all of chapter 3, but I decided on only the back half of 3 because there's so much that is in the context of Romans. And if you approach a portion of the scripture with a wrong context, you will of necessity draw wrong conclusions. And so it's very helpful to read the scripture in context. Many of us have been infected by an idea that the law has been done away with, and we read portions of scripture where various people, whether it's Moses, David, Paul, Christ, when they speak of God's law, we hijack the intention of the writer or the speaker and reinterpret it in a lens of the law has been set aside. Now, I am not telling you that you need to stop eating shrimp. I personally don't like shrimp, but that's not the point. We, are, we in seeking to establish God's law as 
as Romans 3 says, we are not saying that the cultural provisions which excluded Israel from the Gentiles are in force any longer. I'm not telling you to go home and look at all the tags of your clothing and throw away the cotton and polyester mix, shirts and linens and things like this. That is not what we are saying. That's not what Paul is talking about when he says that the, the faith which comes, the justification by faith, establishes the law. Because you have to understand that in the whole context of God's redemptive plan. And that's what I'm going to attempt to do today. I'm going to attempt to read Deuteronomy 6, Romans 3, in the context of the entire story of redemption throughout all of the scriptures. And with that context, I think we're going to see a big aspect of our church culture that's missing that we're going to seek to to remedy. It's not just Grace Christian Fellowship that uh, has not done this in the past, but many parts of the church are neglecting following God's explicit commands in Deuteronomy 6 because we've kind of hijacked Christianity into a spiritualized religion and not a religion or not a faith that is cultural, that is intentional. And what I mean by that, I mean that there are aspects of Christianity which are not prescribed in detail, which are helpful to establish in actually walking out those things which are prescribed in detail. One of those things is praying before a meal. This is something that you probably are very familiar with. In nowhere in scripture is it commanded that you pray before every meal. And yet, Christians throughout the centuries have invoked God's blessing on meals because they recognize that they are not simply eating. They are communing with brothers and sisters. They are extending grace to the stranger and alien. They are in the presence of God, beholding him. And so this is why we do intentional Christian culture. Another aspect of this culture that we're going to look at in a minute is the Ten Commandments being posted in public places. We have been so brainwashed as the church in the West of the division between government and religion or the division between government and church when the founding fathers and the cultural Christianity at work in the day had no area or no room for a secularized government or a government that was worshiping a God, not the explicit God of Jesus Christ. And in fact, as we begin to have our eyes open to this fact, I want you to look at, for the rest of your life, look at the invocations of prayers of presidents. They never pray in Jesus Christ's name. They pray in God's name. And by that God, they mostly mean some sort of abstracted God in the sky with who has no explicit permission, uh, prohibitions or commandments uh, to, be, to either things not to be done or things to be done. Uh, most of our culture has bought into a de-Christianized uh, theology, or that is, a, there exists some God, we don't know who that God is, he might be the same as Allah, and he might be the same as the monotheistic God that the Jews worship, but he's certainly not named the God who sent his only son, Jesus Christ. Uh, so I want you to be aware of that, of what's at work in the culture as contrasted with what God commands us in the scriptures. I believe we are bearing the fruit of a retreat from the proper approach to God's law. And the way to redeem that is not to seek to install a president who will pass a law, who will, you know, that'll state that the Ten Commandments don't have to be removed, but rather we need to find out who removed the Ten Commandments from our hearts. And we need to do the soul-searching work of, have we been lacking in attending to the things that God commands? So that's the context of the message today. And with that, we're going to look at the reading in five points. A good sermon always has five points. Um, that's a reform joke. Um, if you don't know what that means, ask me later. God's covenant faithfulness is the beginning context for the giving of the law. Probably the greatest... Uh, or the greatest uh, objection to someone who states that God's law still applies to Christians is that they think that the law was given as a harsh requirement by God in order for the Israelites to obtain favor with God. We're going to look at how that's not the case, and actually all of God's covenants are not set up that way. All of them are establishing God's covenant faithfulness before giving the obligations or the, the rules the prohibitions to not do something and the commandments to do something. Uh, there are both positive and negative aspects of every law, and God's law includes those. God does not require that they be obeyed before he bestows grace. 
And in fact, if you approach Christianity as a means of moral reformation, if you say to yourself, oh, I've got this drinking problem, I've got this pornography problem, I've got this problem where I am constantly, you know, belittling my spouse or I treat my children wrong or or whatever, whatever sort of problem you have, if you're looking to Christianity mainly for the remedy of some moral problem, some bad fruit in your life, and you're not beginning to hear the actual gospel, which goes to the foundation of who you are and what you're living for. If you're not willing to hear the gospel at that level, you actually will never make progress in those things which you seek to remedy. And so God's covenant faithfulness is the context, not just for the law, but all of the gospel. We're going to look at Uh, a term called catechism, an idea called catechism. Many of you uh, have never heard that term before. Some of you have, especially if you've grown up Roman Catholic or Lutheran. Catechism is not only a Roman Catholic thing. Before we even get into the finer details, when we uh, used to say in the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed that we believe in the Holy Catholic Church, we got a lot of objections from the cultural Christianity at work in America because people would come up and ask, are you Roman Catholic? And then I would look at my wife or look at my parents who are both married and ask, uh, well, they're married. Uh, step number one, the priests and, and Roman Catholicism don't marry. We're, we're not saying by instituting a catechism that we are seeking to make ourselves Catholic in the Roman Catholic sense. We are attempting to remedy a, a very serious problem uh, in the life of the church, which is a thing that Christians have always done before there was ever some sort of official Roman Catholic Church, uh, whatever time you believe that that evolved or came, came about. The Church has practiced this throughout every century, and in every major denomination, this has been a means by which of discipling not just children, but also new converts. And so what we're going to be talking about is this idea of catechism, Uh, I'm going to explain it in detail. We're going to look at what it does do, what it doesn't do, and then finally look at how it can be a remedy. It is not the remedy uh, for all of our ills. We're going to look at the responsibilities of parents as shown in Deuteronomy and how catechism serves parents. It does not impose a burden. It actually is a great means by which parents can actually fulfill God's commands for their children. And you single people don't tune out at that point because uh, you may be parents one day. And even if you never become parents in the natural, you have a responsibility to see to it that no one falls short of the grace of God in your church, in the community of Christians that you are a part of. So uh, you don't get a free pass there. And if I see you nodding off, I'll maybe shake you up. I want to look at the law and the gospel, how it relates, uh, what we spoke about in the first few minutes, and then finally, the renewal of our minds, which is uh, a commandment in the book of Romans. So God teaches Moses the commandments, and Moses, in turn, is supposed to teach the people. He's supposed to gather the fathers, gather the mothers, and teach the people, and this is a succession. God first gives his command to Moses as a federal representative, and then Moses, in turn, delivers the law. Verse 1, now this is the commandment that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you. So Moses here has received the law. He has learned the law, and now he is teaching the law to the Israelites. I'm of the opinion at this point that Moses was supernaturally aided by God to memorize and to behold and and treasure the law of God, mainly because I don't think he had uh, what I have today is a little confidence screen where I can look at the you know thing that's showing up on the projector. I don't think Moses had his iPhone out and uh, referenced it, uh, and he certainly didn't have a you know a whole set of stone you know chisels with him up on the mountain. He may have had a scribe or two maybe Joshua. That, that's certainly permissible. The, the scripture doesn't give us any indication. But here the idea is that Moses understands and has received the law as a representative of the people, and then in turn is giving the law to them. And in fact, this is the foundation for all preaching. If you look in Ezra, this same idea comes up when the exiles are returned to Jerusalem. They sit the people down in groups of uh, 50 and 100, and they, ha- they establish scribes who will read the law and then explain it so as to give the sense. That is to say that Moses is here giving the law from God to the, to the parents, and the parents in turn will give it to the children. The first commandment is not, you shall have no other gods before me. 
but rather that the Israelites should hear. And we cannot do the law of God from the heart if we do not understand or know the law of God. It's impossible to take the New Testament when it says the law of Christ and when Christ in the Great Commission says everything that I've commanded you, uh, it's impossible to take that and hijack it into some spiritualized law. That is the law of Christ being distinct from the law which Moses gave. It is impossible to do so mainly because the church has never interpreted it that way. And also, what would you have if you did not have the law of Moses? Because as Christ teaches in the, the Sermon on the Mount and every other teaching that he gives in the New Testament gospels, he always extends the law further than what the Israelites had interpreted. And if that's the case, we must read the law and interpret it being aided by the Holy Spirit, not according to our eyes or, or according to the flesh. For example, when Jesus Christ is talking about murder, he says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not murder. He's quoting the Ten Commandments. And then he says, I tell you that the intention of God is that you should not even murder in your heart. You should not think of another human being so as to devalue their humanity so as to call them an empty head or a non-person, raka. And so Jesus is extending the law further than the externals to the internals. He, that does not come at the expense of the externals. Jesus is not saying, be careful what you do in your heart, but it's okay if you murder someone in the natural. Likewise with, with adultery. He said, you have heard it was said, do not commit adultery. Again, quoting the Ten Commandments. At that point, Jesus takes it further. He takes it to the root. He says, I tell you, he who looks at a woman with lust in his heart for her has already committed adultery in his heart. And so Jesus always presses the law out to its fullest implication and application. So not only are we commanded not to do things, we are commanded to do things, and this is what the law of God is for us. This is all God's design, not man's. Some people object to this, saying that the Bible calls this the law of Moses, and, and they assume that Moses invented this apart from God's giving. But we see at the first verse, it says, these are the commandments which God gave to me to teach to you. It's not the law of Moses, it's the law of God. The giving of the law was never established by God to, or was never designed by God to establish favor, okay? This is very important, and this is what Deuteronomy hammers home, because God is, is intending to demonstrate that he set up provisions for his people that were done after the miracles in the Exodus, the signs and wonders that he performs. To, to, understand, God, uh, to understand God's purpose in the entire law, you have to read the law in his ever unfolding promise that first came at the garden after the sin of Adam and Eve, also to Noah after he had passed through the waters, and also to Abraham when he was being called by God to leave. Uh, Genesis 3.15, there's a promise given to the woman in the midst of the curse which is pronounced on the ground and the curse which comes and says that women will have pain in their childbirth. God gives the proto-evangelion, the prototype of the gospel, and says to Eve, your seed, that is Jesus Christ, as we understand from Galatians, your seed will have enmity with the serpent, and he will be struck on the heel, but he will stomp the serpent on the head. He will crush him. And so this is the covenant promise that is the foundation for all the rest of the covenants, that there will be one who will come and finally defeat the serpent who tricked our first parents. That is the context for the covenants. The covenant is not given to Israel so that Israel would obtain favor from God. The covenant is given to her after he pulls them out of Egypt. It's by his grace alone that God establishes a people. And so understanding that, we see the objections start to fall. God gave his law for very many reasons, all of which we do not have time to examine. But the chief reason, as the New Testament says, is that it would demonstrate our need to every single person, their need for someone who could not only uh, be God's perfect fulfillment of the law, but also be the atonement for all of our transgressions, which were done under the law. The law is a means of God's grace because it tells us what is and is not sin. If it were up to us, we would have to establish a standard that men would create. And instead, we have been given a means of grace. We know what is right and what is not right. We know what it is like to walk in harmony with our maker. 
We know what it is like to not walk in harmony with our maker. That is what God's law does for us. It tells us what is righteousness and it tells us what is unrighteousness. Now, Paul argues in Romans 2, earlier I said I wanted to read Romans 2. Paul argues that the Gentiles have this inward sense of, of the knowledge of God. Romans 1 says that some of them suppress the truth. Romans 2 says both the Jews and the Gentiles know God. And some of the Gentiles demonstrate that they have an, an inward understanding of God's moral law. But it is not pressed out. He says, of what benefit is Israel? There are many benefits. That is, they have the explicit code which tells them what is and is not sin. And so Paul is not d diminishing the law in any way. He's saying that the law was a means of grace that God gave. And so understanding that it is a means of grace, not by which we establish our righteousness, but rather by which God demonstrates the fruit of our righteousness, which is namely Jesus Christ, we do not throw away the law. Rather, we establish it. So this idea of a catechism and how it relates to uh, Deuteronomy 6 and why I can preach from Deuteronomy 6. It, I had to do all that to get to this point. Uh, a catechism is a, a, a tool that the church has used in every century. A catechism is simply a defined or limited set of questions and answers such that the questions and answers cover the story of God's redemption. And catechisms are established for the purpose of memorization by which the people who are learning the questions and answers are growing in God's grace. Now, this is a means of God's grace. It is not the means of God's grace by which new converts or children can understand God's word. It does not supplant or supersede scripture, but it is a vital tool to use. The creed which we said today, if you remember when we recited it, I said, let's join together and declare our faith as it's found in the Nicene Creed. Creeds, which our church is very familiar with, do succinctly state some of the facts of the Christian faith and religion. They do not press out everything. For example, in the Apostles and Nicene Creed, nothing is made mention of our sin. Our sin is a fact assumed in the creeds. Now, it does say that Christ was our Redeemer. It does say that Christ was the begotten Son, that he was killed, but it does not say why he was killed. And so creeds are helpful in being a short summary of biblical teaching, but they are not exhaustive. Catechisms seek to go one level deeper in that they are more holistic and they cover a broader range of topics. They teach about God, his attributes, the creation, the original goodness of creation, the fall and what that was when Adam and Eve sinned, how that affected everything in the creation, Christ and his redemption, the person of Christ, his work, his divine attributes, how he is both fully God, fully man. These are all things, if you've been at our church for a number of years, you have heard sermons on. But what is especially uh, hard to do is when a church is going throughout uh, its life, new people come all the time. And so a catechism seeks to systematically ensure that people are not missing out on major aspects of Christian doctrine. That is all that a catechism seeks to do. The traditional way that catechisms have been used is a process of memory and recitation. Uh, Psalms 1 uh, says that the man who is blessed meditates on the law of God. It doesn't say God's word, on the law of God. And Psalm 119 says that not only is, is his meditation all the day, but uh, David says that he has hidden God's word in his heart that he might not sin against God. That is the means by which David sees an avenue of God's grace to prevent and to limit sin in his life. And so memorization is a means by which God seeks to demonstrate or to enable deep contemplation. When you meditate upon God's word in any fashion, whether it's in a systemized summary or explicitly on the verses themselves, it allows deep communion by the Holy Spirit with Christ. This is one of God's means for uh, the word to actually take shape in your life. Um, just a quick testimony of my life. I, I have not been formally catechized. The churches that I went to when I was young uh, instead decide, decided to have um, Chubby Bunny uh, be one of the main things every year instead of, if you don't know what Chubby Bunny is, God bless you. Um, come pray for me later. Um, but 
I, I had a, uh, about five years ago, I was on a plane and I was going to, I think, a conference. Uh, I might have been, I, I don't exactly remember. I, I knew I was on a plane. I think I might have been going down to Florida. But I just decided a few weeks beforehand to kind of start learning about catechisms. A few people had kind of told me about them and I, had, I knew what they were growing up, but never had moved beyond uh, the, you know, simple foundation. And I found myself reading, I downloaded a PDF of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. And on the entire plane ride, I was weeping as God was moving over my heart because I was just reading the questions and answers of the simple truth of my need for a redeemer. And I do not say that to say that scripture is not helpful. I do not say that to say that catechisms, if you do not do them, you are sinning. But I am saying that just like songs can be, just like creeds can be, catechisms can be a means by which God imparts grace to his children. And so uh, catechisms are an antidote to a plague of triviality that is sweeping the entire world, uh, especially the, world in, the Christian world in the West. Uh, one great indictment of the triviality which we subject our children to in Sunday schools is this, and test yourself in this, can you recite right now in your mind the Ten Commandments? Now, this is an extremely depressing moment for us as Christians when we say to ourselves, we uphold God's word, we love God's word, we treasure it, and yet we cannot know, we don't know the Ten Commandments. There is a deep hypocrisy of objecting to the removal of Ten Commandments without simultaneously addressing our neglect of the primality of God's word. That is, who removed the Ten Commandments from my heart? Now, I, by God's grace, know the summary, but I can't recite them. But you know what? I, I, I bet you if we got together after church, we could all get together and have a Silly Songs with Larry contest by which you and I would demonstrate that we have memorized hundreds of trivial, ridiculous lines about where our hairbrushes are and what our cheeseburgers are doing. Now... It's comical, and yet at the same time, it is deeply tragic that we have so neglected the attending to our children that we've forced them to use this content instead of doing the deep and hard and God-glorifying work of teaching them the scriptures. That is what catechism seeks to remedy. It is a remedy. It is not the remedy. Though informed by scripture, catechisms are not a replacement for scripture. This is not supplanting the, the word. This does not go over and against the word. And appealing to catechisms, you can never reject the word of God as it is plainly taught. There are some times where a catechism may be confusing, and it certainly can contradict your interpretation of the word. But when we are deciding doctrine, we do not use catechisms as a tool to work over the scripture, but rather as a, a, a means by which we can understand some of the teachings of Scripture. Finally, I'd like to say catechisms are not magic. Okay? Memorizing one is not going to make you a Christian. Everything in the Christian life that you do, whether it's reading your Bible, praying, worshiping, witnessing with others, it is all done in faith. Good works which are carried out are not effectual themselves but rather they rely on the grace of Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit. If this quote sounds great, uh, it may be, it's not mine. None of the means of God's grace are effectual in themselves, but only by the grace of Jesus Christ and the working of the Holy Spirit in us by faith. My preaching to you today or any day is not effectual in and of itself. And if that sounds like a great quote, that's because it's question six or 61 of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. It's that sort of material which is covered in a catechism. Uh, and so this is what a catechism is and isn't. Now, moving on from that, we're going to see how a catechism can be, not is necessarily, but can be a means by which parents fulfill God's law. When Christ is asked what the greatest commandment in Matthew, uh, he's asked by the Pharisees, he's asked what the greatest commandment is, and he quotes Deuteronomy. He says, you shall love the Lord your God, and here he's quoting from uh, the the Greek version of the Old Testament, not the Hebrew version. And he, he says, with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, instead of heart, soul, and might. And this message is entitled, Loving God with All of Your Life. It should not just be the case that you love God with your heart and your soul, or some sort of, I have some sort of mushy feelings for God, but rather I'm going to love God with my mind. You do not stumble into loving God with your mind. 
You might have to use chalk and a blackboard or a piece of paper or the memorization of scripture or deep contemplation through theological writings. You do not come to love God with your mind in a trivial or meaningless way. You don't stumble into it. And so Jesus is indicting the Pharisees in the very next chapter. What does he indict them for? For failing to pass down the law as it's written by God, but rather instead giving them their interpretation. If you reread Matthew 23 in that context, it makes sense as a whole. He's indicting them for making their disciples into sons of hell, is what Jesus says. I know that's not a very uh, appropriate phrase for church, but I think it's okay. Jesus indicts them. He, he is bringing a covenant lawsuit against the Pharisees for not passing down the law as God intended. Now, here we see our own error. We can not pass down the law of God as God intended, or we can just simply not pass it down at all through neglect. The same context for our Lord's quotation is the teaching of the story of redemption to the children. When This is a, a principle of hermeneutics, but... Um, And it it takes a little bit of time to read in the scriptures and to see, but everywhere in the New Testament, or even in the prophets, where a prophet or an apostle or Jesus Christ, uh, uh, one of the epistle writers, whenever they are quoting a place in the Old Testament, they are attempting to invoke the context. And that's a principle of scripture. And so understanding that when Jesus says the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, he's quoting and invoking the context of Deuteronomy 6, which goes on to show the primal, the primal focus of the law is passing it down faithfully. Verse 6, the very next verse after you shall love the Lord your God, it begins with the word and and these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You can actually think of understanding God's word as the commandment underneath all the other commandments. Now, I'm not saying it's more important than not having only one God, that is, that is Yahweh. What I am saying is, if you don't know the commandments, you cannot keep them. And so the first commandment is to hear and to learn and to have those commandments enter into your heart. Verse 7, you shall diligently teach them to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise. And if you think of it in your deepest heart of heart, especially for those who have children or are about to have children, your greatest desire is that this would actually be true. If, if you look in your heart of heart, what do you want your life to be focused on? I'm sure it doesn't want to be focused on Netflix. <laughs> Guilty as charged. I love Netflix. I need, I need God's work in my heart. Uh, verse 8, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. What are gates for? Gates are for the protection of a city. Gates allow the city elders to close and open to allow things in and out of the city to close when a war is coming or when marauders or raiders are coming. And this is why the law of God is on the gates because the people are to understand that the gate is not what is important, but rather God's provision. My question to you this morning is, where do you think the tradition of posting the Ten Commandments came from? It came from Deuteronomy 6. It didn't come as some invention that we just all decided to get together and say, well, it'd be really great if we uh, put some scripture on walls, and that would be amazing. And No, the Christians of our former generations in this country saw themselves as the true Israelites who were moving forward on a country which was to be for the service of God. And they saw themselves as those who were true inwardly Jews. That is, Paul argues in Romans 2, which I wanted to read today, but you can read at home later, that the true Jew is the one who is inward. And this is extremely offensive, but the Jews who call themselves Jews, who live in Israel now, are not Jews because they turned away from Yahweh and they did not receive the Messiah. Paul says they are not truly Jewish. What it means to truly be Jewish is to love the Lord your God and recognize the one that he sent, that is his son. And so we see ourselves as a continuation of true spiritual Israel. We are not some hijacked movement by which God did a bait and switch on Israel. He said they would always have the land and they would always have the covenant. And then God said, oh, 
sorry, going to do it through the church instead. It wasn't a bait and switch, but rather we were engrafted into the one root who is Jesus Christ. So we should learn his law. We are hypocrites, as I said earlier, if we resist the removal of public monuments, but don't deal with the removal of the Ten Commandments from our heart. And not just the Ten Commandments, but all of God's word. Understanding how his law applies to every sphere of life, that must become our goal. God has ordained that parents have a primary role in teaching their children about his covenant faithfulness. This is what Malachi says, that the the one who comes in the spirit of Elijah, his goal will be to turn the fathers to the children and the children to the fathers. That is, they were at enmity, there was division in the family, and yet he's going to turn their hearts by the Holy Spirit to love each other. This is what it means for us in the new covenant. Verse 20, when your son asks you in time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies and statutes? Look at that question and answer format again. Uh, What is the meaning? Verse 21, then you shall say to your son, we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt. Now look closely at the application here. We were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt. The Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. The Lord showed signs and wonders, great and grievous, against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes. And he brought us out from there, that he might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to give to our fathers. And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as we are to this day. Verse 25, closing, it will be the righteousness for us if we are careful to do all this commandment before the Lord our God as he has commanded us. We must teach our children the history of Israel and then do the deep work of applying it to the new covenant. That is, we were slaves in Egypt. He made a way of escape for the, Egyptian, for the Israelites out of Egypt, but we were actually enslaved to a much deeper form of slavery, one that was insidious and hidden and only in our hearts, but manifesting through our deeds. One which we could not remove ourselves from, but rather something that he had to come and do. Though God struck the firstborn of the Egyptians, he slew his only begotten son, that he would be a perfect sacrifice for us. Do you remember when God, at the final, the final judgment that he brings against Egypt, he strikes down all the firstborn? That was to point forward to the fact that the firstborn of God had to be slain, had to be murdered in order for our redemption. Pharaoh and his army were totally destroyed in the Red Sea. But God did one greater in Christ, Not only did he separate us from our sins, but he also totally destroyed Satan and his kingdom and transferred us out of that kingdom into a kingdom of light and goodness, the kingdom of Jesus Christ. That is much better and much greater than what we saw in the story with the Hebrews. Just as the redemption is greater, so also is our charter. And our charter means the deed that we have for the land that we are to live in. Instead of a small piece of land that is in a geographic, geographically defined region, God has given us through Christ all of the earth. Yes. And we are supposed to go into all of the earth and then teach God's law. Matthew 28, 18 through 20, probably one of the most famous quotations, especially in the Protestant world, that God gave his apostles a great commission to go into all the world. Why? Because he has all authority. And what are we to do? We're to baptize the nations in his name, and also teach them to observe everything that Christ commanded. Well, what did Christ command? If you read the New Testament, if you read the Gospels alone as the law of Christ, and do not interpret it and found it in, or uh, lay a foundation in the law that was given through Moses, you don't have anything at all. Jesus Christ only is giving commandments which are greater applications of the commandments. The reiteration of the law in the New Testament is clear. And so we are to take that thing, that law, and teach it to be observed, not to be set aside. And this is where the difference is even more magnified. The old covenant did not come with a grace by which the Israelites were able to do that. When saying that we should still have the law operating in how we read the the scriptures and how we approach God, we are not stating that we must need to do the law in order to achieve righteousness before God. God's giving of the law was a gracious gift, though they could not perform it. And Israel went one step further. Not only did the law not contain enough grace to do it, but also they perverted it in order to achieve righteousness before God. 
Romans 3, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. What is Paul saying? He's saying the law and the prophets bear witness to our need for a righteousness that does not come from ourselves, but rather a righteousness which is by faith imputed to us by Jesus Christ. Verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, jumping down to 26, it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. The gospel is not a escape hatch in the justice of God. Paul says that God is just, that is he's righteous and he's the justifier. At this moment, because of what Christ has done in the courtroom of heaven, you can, by faith, be also accused and acquitted. That is the law of God, which demonstrates your sin and the satisfaction which God presented in Christ apart from the law. Those are both speaking at the same time. It is not a escape hatch out of God's justice into God's mercy. It does not downplay God's holiness and his just wrath, but rather it is an exaltation of those and a fulfillment of those. Through Christ, we can, by faith, have righteousness before God, not because we do the law, not because we teach our children the right way, not because we're Christians in our business dealings and we treat our spouses the right way and we exhibit the fruit of the Spirit. It's because of what Christ has done alone. In seeking to be intentionally Christian in how we approach teaching our children, we are not stating that they must memorize the catechism in order to be rightly considered Christians. That's not what we're stating in the least. The distinctive aspect of the new covenant is not that the law is done away with, but that it is established. The law was not able to be done, but in the new covenant, God promises both through Jeremiah and Ezekiel to not only put his spirit in us, in order that we would have the law written on our hearts, but that he would also take out the heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh. If he did not both write the law on our hearts and change our hearts, we would have nothing. We would just have some internal conscience which constantly judges us. But now we have a heart that is able to do God's command in his power alone so that he gets the glory. The law is able to be carried out in the spirit of Christ Verse 27 in Romans 3, then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by a law of faith. That is to say, not that they are distinctly different, but rather that the approach to God's law, which is done in faith, is, ab is able to perform God's law from the heart. Now that performing of God's law is never perfect. It's never perfect. You cannot, after being justified by Christ, begin to look at your works and to say to yourself, well, I'm a Christian. I should be able to do the law perfectly. No, that will never take place. And if you ever go off that direction, you'll need a pastoral appointment very quickly. The point is that Paul is attempting to convey that the law of faith or the approach to the law, which is done in faith, does not set aside the law, but rather, verse 31, we uphold the law. So, Paul, in concluding a major section of his letter, this is where we're ending today, issues a summary statement on how Christians are to approach living as Christians, walking out their faith. Romans 12, 1 through 2, this is where we're ending today. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, in light of everything that I've just written in Romans 1 through 11, Paul is saying, I appeal, therefore, by the mercy of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. That word spiritual, I don't think is a great word. The word actually is more correctly translated logical, or the, uh, as in proposition A, proposition B, both are true, therefore C, right? It, it logically follows in light of everything that God has done, everything that Paul reiterated in Romans 1 through 11, that we would present our bodies as a living sacrifice. And that is our worship, not the singing of songs, the reciting of creeds. Although God has given reasons for those, although those are rightly part of the church's life and practice, those are not the basis of our spiritual worship. The basis of our spiritual worship is authentic Christianity that's lived from the heart out. And that's what he says in this verse, in verse two, he defines our logical worship or the right worship in verse two, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing, you may discern what is the will of God, 
what is good and acceptable and perfect. And this makes total sense. God does not want us to be little robots who do his law as an external law, nor does he wish for us to just go around assuming to ourselves that because we're now in Christ, we can do whatever we want and we can live however we would like. The scripture condemns both approaches, the antinomian approach and the legalistic approach. God desires that you would be a real living being made in his image, thinking in the way that he wishes you to think. And the way that that happens is by the transforming of your mind. This is God's mind control. And don't, don't object to that because you will be controlled by whatever spirit you open yourself up to, whether it's the spirit of the age or the spirit of humanism, whatever, whatever spirit you subject yourself to, they will attempt to control your mind. Now, hopefully that doesn't sound too scary. But the point is that you are to be transformed, and that is what it means to be a Christian and to love God with all your life. It means to subject how you think to the scriptures, to be transformed by the Spirit of God. Testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. True worship is not limited to church services, but goes to the root of who you are as a human. This all begins when we subject our minds to the renewal that comes by his Holy Spirit as he illuminates his word. And that is not just the New Testament. You cannot just cut your Bible in half. And in fact, actually, if you do this, test yourself in this, whether you value the, the Old Testament. See, go to the place right before Matthew where it says New Testament. I'd tell you to rip that page out. Uh, but, and I have good reason for that. You can ask me why. Um, but... If you, if you divide your scriptures up, let me just do it for you right now uh, as an illustration in the flesh. What you do when you reject the law and the prophets is you throw away all of this out of your Bible. And you have all of this. And I would subject that to you that you inwardly know that's wrong. So in seeking to establish what Stephen's going to come after the communion and tell us about in the practical means... We are not attempting to perform our righteousness by God. And just like every other aspect of our Christian faith, it must be done in faith that God is the one who will do the work. So let's close. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray, God, that you would restore the right value for your word in our lives. And Lord, we, we do ask that you would forgive us for um, partnering with and being comfortable with this idea that uh, your word is trivial, it's unimportant. We pray, God, that you would not only restore how we approach teaching our children, but, Lord, that we ourselves would submit to your word, that we would read it, that it would become our meditation, that it would become uh, a thing which we love to discuss and search out, that, that the grace which you gave to the great poet George Herbert would become true for us, that, that he wrote, that he longed to see all the constellations that are formed through all the shining verses of your scripture, Lord, we pray that we would have that opinion of your word and that you would truly allow us by your grace to be a doer of this word and not just a hearer alone. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.